My favorite part was when we lost in 1990. That, that's like one of those moments, like I, I, I knew where everyone was at. I knew it was like you had a you had like a connection. I don't know if you guys saw it. MJ was like, where's BJ? Where's Scotty? That, that was like, I, re, I remember that game before. I remember what happened. I remember, and I don't remember anything, but I remember that game. And I remember going from, we thought we had a chance to, oh, you know, like what's going on here? We didn't play well to, we need Scotty, but Scotty wasn't feeling well to, we all sat in that locker room and the disappointment and no one talked the whole time. And everybody showed up the exact same day to come out and work out every single day. This is After the Last Dance. I am Tate Frazier, and I am joined by one of the stars of oh. The Last Dance on ESPN, <laughs> the documentary ser- series detailing Michael Jordan. And that, of course, is BJ Armstrong. BJ, I'm flattered to be here with you. You're now, you're now a TV star. What's going on in the world? Well, you know what, Tate? I'm always happy to see you, mm-hmm. and now you're flattered. You know, look at all of the, mm. the adjectives, how you're describing the moment. It was, uh, as I told you before, it's always weird seeing yourself on television. Mm-hmm. So to see yourself in the documentary, remembering, recalling all these stories, and uh, so it was great. And um, I didn't know what to expect, and all of a sudden you pop up and you go, oh, wow, here I am, and uh, we're talking, and and going, you know, really, it's a trip for me back down memory lane. And it's one of those things, that, as we recall, for people that have been listening to Pushing Through for quite some time, BJ, you've told the world, you've let everyone know, you do not watch highlights of yourself. You do not like <laughs> no. to go back and uh, and reflect on the good old days like most people do. And that's why I find it so interesting to see you have to do that and reminisce. And, of course, we had the director, Jason Hare, on the, on the, uh, the last episode that we did, and Jason said that you were the MVP of the series. And this is our first little taste of BJ Armstrong and uh, as far as what you saw, are you happy with the way you were depicted? Is there anything you wish you would have said uh, in this first iteration of what we've seen? Well, you know, it, it, look, you have to stay with the integrity of the movie and the documentary. So I'm really happy about how the storyline and the stories that are being told, because, you know, you just want to be authentic to the story and how all of that happened. You know, none of us anticipated that, you know, some 30 years later that there would be a um, documentary being made but the interesting thing about it is you know being able to see that and it really brings up emotions right Mm -hmm. you know I kind of like I did it been there done that and I've moved on to watch that all of a sudden you have these emotions that I thought were gone but they're still there and uh, I remember the pain of what that felt like when we lost in 1990 I believe and I remember the joy of what that felt like in 1991 and the focus and the determination and all those things. But, you know, the one thing that I I can, you know, being with these guys, being in the locker room and going through the ups and downs and the trials and the tribulations of being a part of a team, that was very unique. And uh, I really thought, you know, I had kind of forgot about it. Hey, moved on with life. But it really, there was like an emotional, like, oh, wow. I, I, I recall that. I remember the focus and dedication and all of the things that we, 
did. And the thing I recall most is that, yes, you win the championship in June, but to be honest with you, the championship was really won in the summer. That's when we won the championship. The mm -hmm. summer of 1990 was the greatest, you know, really pivotal moment of my NBA career. It was the greatest summer, the greatest, you know, where all the guys on the team were dedicated to a single cause. And everyone, you know, went about putting in the effort that was necessary to do that. And then everyone saw what we had been thinking since the summer. And then you actually saw it come to life there in June against the, uh, the LA Lakers in 1991. So let's talk about that. that. That's in the second episode. We're going to go kind of chronologically with what we see here. And obviously the, the story this week, the big uh, headline going into this was, of course, we're going to hear the story of Dennis Rodman. Everybody wants to talk about this, Dennis Rodman. We, we get the whole Vegas story with Carmen Electra and Michael Jordan. We'll get to all that later. Uh, but before, like you said, this is the pivotal summer. And this is the summer that Michael Jordan, he, the Jordan rules are happening. The Pistons are beating him up. They basically said physicality was their calling card. This is who they were as a team. We see Dennis Rodman talking about the fact that at that time in basketball, it was a fight. It was a physical brawl. And Jordan and Tim Grover and the rest of the Bulls team, like you said, after you lose that game seven to the Pistons, you're down 20. Uh, Michael Jordan, you know, after the game says, congratulations, they were the better team. But, you know, you you said it was a silent locker room there after game right. seven. And then that summer, everything clicks, everyone's focused. And, and like you said, the mentality of the team takes it up to another level. And you come back that next year and you get over your demons. Yeah, that, that, that's kind of how it, it it went. You know, it was, you know, there was a, an emotional roller coaster right there mm -hmm. because we get to game seven and we really felt that we had an opportunity to win that game. Mm -hmm. We felt good about our chances. We felt we had a great game plan. Uh, we felt very confident. And suddenly the wind was taken out of our sail. You know, you know, we talked about Scotty had, uh, you know, he had the migraine and we really just kind of collapsed, if you will. But the one thing that even though we didn't play well, even though we lost that game, that was the moment where we all had to make a choice. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like we came to the fork in the road. Right. If, if, if any way I could put it, Tate, it was our moment of truth. That was the Bulls moment of truth. And we could have gone left. Or we could have gone right. And but we were going to go one or the other. And I think everyone felt that pain. I, I, I can't tell you how much pain, you know, I felt. That was the first time I've ever as a young kid had to admit like someone was better than me right they were they were better than us my matchup which was isaiah thomas he was better than me but collectively we felt that we could do something to overachieve our advantages and our disadvantages and um that was i i it hurt so bad like yeah you win the championships you see everyone jumping around but you know when you see people crying i never imagine you know that i would cry when you win but when when the game hurts you that bad right when that's that much misery in your life that's what happens and i think that's what you saw the emotional outburst of michael you saw the all the emotional outbursts of everyone because going through that tate i don't wish that on anyone because it felt like something i've never felt before and that's when you realize that you love something like mm -hmm. You know, you you're, all your insecurities of saying, oh, it really doesn't matter or this and that. No, I, I really love the game. <laughs> That's what mm -hmm. I really love. 
and you can't deny that you can't hide that uh, and that's what you felt and um those were great times and that summer obviously you know scotty basically it was said mj made him his focal point and and scotty you know there was all the rumors and rumblings around chicago at the time talking about the migraine you, you hear the kind of the background story behind that there was all the the stories with scotty pippen and the rivalry between pippen and, and you know and rodman back then then basically you, you get the the next year and scotty's unshakable we get the flagrant foul mm-hmm. but sh- sh- you know scotty doesn't whine he doesn't complain and Bill Cartwright talked about it. That was the mentality of this team because, it, you know, they had been dealing with the Pistons and right. that mentality, you know, Horace Grant said it as well, you know, trying to complain to the officials. It never benefited. <laughs> so it was finally in 1991, everyone just shut up and they were willing to take the beating and the Pippins and the Pistons see Pippen is not backing down and that gets them rattled. And, and therefore you guys go ahead and win in four games. Well, you know, take back then, you know, if I can go back in time and yeah, back then, there was a thing in the NBA, it was mental warfare, right? There was mm-hmm. mental games that were being played within the game, right? Yes, they got all of this attention for their physicality and physically what they were doing, but mentally they were a very, very tough group. Make no doubt about it. And they were gonna wear you down. And for us, you know, they were trying to make us react to them. And that was the way that they dictated the game. Mm-hmm. So they were gonna dictate the physicality of the game. And, you know, watching those, you know, tapes and watching those, you know, those highlights, I don't know if anyone else saw it, but it reminded me of the times of when I played because the referees would actually talk to you, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And most of the time, like today, you don't really see the referees really talking to the players like you do then. There was an actual relationship. So, you know, one of the referees in the the film was Joey Crawford, right? Mm -hmm. The Pistons were going to play a certain way when Joey Crawford was refereeing because they knew how he was going to referee. They knew his personality. So mm-hmm. you had all of these little things going on within the game. And we had to understand and bring the mental capacity to say, okay, we're not going to allow them to dictate the pace of the game. So there's a regular season pace tape. Mm-hmm. There is a playoff pace and then there's a championship level pace. The mm-hmm. Pistons were a championship. They were playing at a championship pace for years. And when we peeked into that zone and there was no more reacting, there was no more having to fight to show that we were a tough group. No, mentally we could match them move for move. And once that happened, now, we will get back to our advantage was we were younger. We were, we had not only one guy who could play off the dribble, we had two guys mm-hmm. and that was our advantage. And when Scotty did that, that's when we all knew like, okay, we're here. And they knew we were here and nothing happened other than they pushed him down. And all of us, we just mm-hmm. stood silent and mm-hmm. that's, moment there it was like one of those collective things where nothing was said nobody did anything you know everybody was expecting us to come up and want to fight that's what the pistons wanted and Mm -hmm. we knew that they knew it and then we went about our business held our composure and went out and executed and did what we had to do 
And you've told me this before. There's nothing that makes someone think that you are crazy other than silence. Silence is deadly. <laughs> and, and when you just sit there silently, some people don't know how to act. And especially if, <laughs> right, if, right. if it's Scotty Pippen and you're going against someone like Dennis Rodman and you behave that way, you almost shock him a little bit because he's so shocked to see Scotty, you know, have no, uh, you know, he's not affected by the situation at all, which was, you know, a big calling card in this whole situation. Then you mentioned, of course, the Pistons lose. Chuck Daly, you know, clears the bench. The, the Pistons leave. MJ is upset. We get the the iPad, the infamous iPad comes back out. They show M- MJ the iPad. They say, this is Isaiah's take on this. He compares it to what the Celtics did with him with Kevin McHale. We see the footage right. of that with the little high five exchange. MJ says he doesn't care. It's absolute bullshit. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's an asshole regardless. Um, what, what are your thoughts as another teammate on the Bulls? I mean, did you understand at that time that this was ultimate disrespect? Did you take it as a lack of sportsmanship? What, what was the mood for you? Because we obviously know how Michael feels to this very day. Well, Tate, um, you know, back then, I really didn't think twice about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I really didn't because I understood that there was something that they were trying to accomplish with the following year. This group was a very prideful group. This group wasn't willing to accept that they were no longer the champions, mm-hmm. right? You fight to get to the top of the hill and then suddenly, you know, when do you say enough is enough? <laughs> and we were young, we were hungry, and we didn't come there for permission. We came there to say, we're taking this. Mm-hmm. And I got what they were trying to do. It was like, it was a game. So they wanted us to react because the, what they were really saying was, oh, we're going to see y'all next year. Y'all might have won this year, but we're going to see y'all next year because they had already beaten us year after year after year. Mm-hmm. So they weren't ready to a- acknowledge or hand over the baton, if you will, to this emerging group. They were still like, hey, man, we've been to the finals, what, like three years in a row? Mm-hmm. Or, they, you know, they had a great run going. And... um I got what they were trying to do, how it looked, how it came off, the execution of this, it's, the camera was there. So, you know, it just, it is what it is. It was what it was. And we moved on. But to be honest with you, I just wanted to make sure that, you know what? Okay. All right. We'll see you guys next year. You know, because for us, it was all about being prepared for whatever was going to come. Because that's who they were. They were a team that was, they were going to challenge you on that plane. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, okay, they walked off. But it wasn't like we thought, you know, they they were done as a group. I mean, Isaiah was still an all-star. Joe Dumars was still an all-star. Bill Lambeer was an all-star playing very high. Mark Aguirre, Dennis Rodman, a Hall of Famer, was coming off the bench. Mm -hmm. John Sally, you had the microwave sitting over there. So it wasn't like... (laughs) It wasn't like, yeah, we got their number. It was still like, you know, proceed with caution. We understand. And we Mm -hmm. didn't want to show any sign of weakness even in that moment. So if you look at everybody, no one budged. There was no celebration on on our behalf. You know, it was like, okay, this is what it was. You know, we, we, I mean, think about it. We've been up 2-0 in a series against them. We've been down 0-2 in a series and we lost to them both ways. So Michael had lost to them every way possible. 
now we were at a position now to where we could close them out. Mm-hmm. And we didn't play around with that. Like, was that team wasn't anything to play with. They were respected and uh, they were playing good basketball that year. And Horace Grant called them straight up bitches, obviously, when they walked out. <laughs> so that was a good moment. I do. You would like that. that. I do. That would be your defining moment for the uh, for the whole doc. <laughs> oh, I mean, I like that. And then I like that Isaiah Thomas <laughs> clarifying this is the only time that he was ever swept in the series, you know. And, and, but then thinking about it, if he just thought about it, you know, even though you know that he knows that deep down. Um, yeah, it was some great moments. And like you said, it conjures up. Uh, a time in the NBA when all this stuff is going on, which obviously uh, makes it a special moment. And then that takes us to a, a special time, which is, you know, the first time the Bulls are in the NBA finals with you, Michael Jordan, uh, taking on Magic. It is air versus Magic. We see the headlines. It is the passing of the baton. Of course, the Pist- the Pistons and John Sally mentioned the doc. The NBA, they wanted the Magic and Bird pass the baton to MJ. You know, they were ruining the party, quote unquote. But now MJ's here. Magic's excited to play MJ. And you lose the first game, and immediately Michael Wilbon says America thinks the Bulls are going to lose. But we've talked about this before, but you guys got to the locker room and you were very confident, even though you lost game one at home. Yeah, you know, you got you to go back in time, right? This was before the Bulls were the Bulls, mm-hmm. and everyone was singing all of the praises that, we see, that we're seeing today. Up until that moment, Tate, no one had built a team around a scoring two-guard, mm-hmm. right? So it's easy to say now, you know, all of those things. But back then, no one was building a team around a guy. I mean, Michael Jordan was, uh, I mean, he was, he was an anomaly, if you will, because mm-hmm. he was playing and doing something no one had done before. So there was no bl- blueprint there. All the teams, for the most part, were built around bigger players, right? Magic was 6'9", but he had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You had Larry Bird, who was 6'9", or 6'10". And you had Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish and, you know, Bill Russell. So the bigs at that time were the blueprint, if you will, of mm-hmm. how to win in the NBA. And suddenly now Michael Jordan comes along and takes us to a place and gets us to think out of the box. And we didn't know. But what we did know is that we had a player who could play like a big. Michael had a phenomenal post game. So even though he was a 6'6 wing, high flying act, could do all those things, what Michael Jordan really was is he was a 6'6 center because he played below the free throw line with a live dribble. Mm-hmm. And he was a very efficient player. And he could he had big enough hands to take on a double team and pass out of the double team with with those hands. So that that's a very unique thing to most people. It's like, why are you talking about his hands? Well, because it's easier to pass with one hand out of a double team and he could absorb the double team and he mm-hmm. could do that with one hand. That's what kind of separates him from say a Kobe Bryant, right? Kobe Bryant didn't have, he never had the big hands where he could just take the ball and, and pass out of a double team with just one hand. And so Michael was unique. We knew we had a unique group. We didn't know what it was, but we knew we had a player who could do all the things a center could do. And we were just naive enough to think, well, he can do the same thing they can do and more because we could play 94 feet, right? Most of the centers at that time, or still, they could only play from the post position. Michael could play from the top, the weak side, strong side, transition. And it just gave us a significant advantage that we were able to kind of discover and we discovered it together and then he just took off and you know and, and started doing his thing and that's when 
to me, the Air Jordan character really just transcended the game because he was doing something no one had seen before. And you, you mentioned in that Lakers series, I mean, the first game, Sam, Sam Perkins hits a big three. They win that game. Right. You know, James Worthy and Magic have a great game in that game. But then Scottie Pippen proceeds to pick up Magic full court. And, you know, you talk about that in the doc. They, they show you and you just say, you know, that was a, a problem in practice. I mean, Jordan even said that, you know, you didn't want Scottie to do that. That was something right. we didn't want to see. But one of the things you mentioned to me in that game one was you guys had to make Magic work a little bit. And one of the ways you wanted to make him work was bounce passes. And it's it's a simple thing in the game of basketball, but if, <laughs> right, you, right, if you think right. about a guy that's six seven six eight, if you make him you know go low and deal with bounce passes when you when you have guards that are making passes with Paxson and you and MJ and Scotty et cetera, it, it makes it more of a problem. And you guys ended up winning using bounce passes, which I always found a yeah. it's a nice little quirk. Well, well, I mean, I think Michael alluded to it here in the doc. We were all nervous, right? You can't deny the finals media, right? Mm -hmm. It's a, it's, it's a different, it's a, it's a, it's a different animal all into itself. So if we can be, you know, look, we, we could be complete transparent. We were really nervous as a team mm -hmm. and we had to get over our nervousness because that was our first finals. We didn't know what to expect. We were playing at home, so forth and so on. What I remember most about that series was in game one, Michael gets in foul trouble. He gets two quick fouls. Mm -hmm. we came out so aggressive that we couldn't contain ourselves and he gets two quick fouls and the matchup, if you will, the buildup the week before, what have you was magic versus Michael. That was the matchup. All of us wasn't going to shy away with Michael leading the charge from any of the matchups. The matchup was Michael was going to guard magic. Now Michael gets two fouls and suddenly we have to make, you know, an adjustment kind of on the fly. Mm -hmm. And Magic picked us apart in game one. I mean, he's he, he's mad. He's, he's doing his mm -hmm. thing. He's throwing no lookers. He, <laughs> he's doing his thing. Now, mm -hmm. we didn't play well in game one. And that was a blessing for us because that gave us confidence. Like, God, we played awful. And we still had a chance to win at the end. So we lost the game the right way. Mm -hmm. And so game two... We were like, okay, we know what we got to do. We got past our nerves, and then we're going to move on. What the adjustment we made was we put Scotty on Magic. Mm -hmm. Scotty is bigger than Michael, and all we yep. tried to do was make Magic throw bounce passes. Because if you ever watch Magic, he's throwing it right by your ear. Mm -hmm. He could, he's so big, he can just look over the defense. He could do all of these things. What we tried to do was to keep Magic with his back to the basket so he couldn't see the floor. But more importantly, we knew if we could make him throw bounce passes, we could get to the double teams quicker, right? Mm -hmm. James Worthy. We could get to Sam Perkins. We could get to Vladi Divac. That would make our defense that much better. Something as simple as that is the difference between winning and losing. So Magic wasn't able to pick us apart with his Magic Johnson passes, mm -hmm. and now our defense was that much better. They were we were so active on the defensive end. And you can see Scotty was just harassing him because you don't see players like Scotty Pippen back then. Like you see him now, but you don't you didn't see him then. And I think Magic was kind of it took Magic a game or two before he really kind of was able to make the adjustments he needed to make. But just a, something as simple as let's make him when he throws it to the post a bounce pass. And that made us that much better. And uh, that's that's was one of the reasons that allowed us to win that series. 
And of course, yeah, you go ahead and win. You want 108, 101 uh, in game five there in LA. We get the moment with Magic going to talk to MJ, and that's the the pass the baton moment as we see there. And obviously, you're in the building yeah. there. You win the first title. We get the shot in the locker room. MJ's holding the tr- trophy. He's crying. We see James Jordan, his father there, who he's got the suit on. He, you know, he's ecstatic for Jordan. What was that moment? Was it more relief, if anything, because this team had gone through through so much, obviously together, and you finally reached um, the mountaintop? You know, you know, you. You have these like things you don't know how you're going to react right and mm. what i remember most was uh i mean it's just like they said when i saw the scene so you know in the lock in the lakers locker room at the, at the time they played at the fabulous form mm-hmm. and uh, you know the form had this mystique about it right and so we come back in the locker room and we're all excited and our door just opens from the back of the locker room and it's magic. He just walks. <laughs> it was like, it was like, yeah. it was like one of those moments. Everybody's celebrating and everybody look around like, did he just walk out of any, and he just walked through the back of the locker room and he was so gracious. Mm-hmm. And when I tell you, it was like one of those moments, like, you know, you, 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 you lose like a champion, you win and you try to say, win like a champion. And, um, it was one of those things that I remember Magic coming in and really just having so much class. He came in the locker room. I mean, he was like very humbled, very excited for us. And uh, he came in the locker room. So I do remember that he just walked out. He just kind of out of nowhere. Magic just kind of, he was like Magic. He just showed up right in the locker room. And then I remember Michael with his dad. And mm. I just remember him just overcoming with emotion. And I remember all of us just knowing the road. And, uh, but I remember him, Michael being very, very emotional because of, you know, he was there the longest, right? And um, it, 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 it's hard to get there, you know, it, it's a lot of things, you know, it's great to tell the story, especially when you win, right? The stories get better with time. But the truth of it is, Tate, um, we have been through so much, there's so much, you know, things that ups and downs and pain and and giving and finding out, you know, how this is going to work, not knowing whether it was going to work, not knowing what the outcome could be. And it was, it, it's really, you know, it's, God, I, I can just, it, it, it's, I can't even explain it because it's, it's, it looks one way, but honestly, you're just overcome with like this great, emotion and relief and all of the things that you may have fear about and all of the things you have tried to do since you were a little kid playing the game in the backyard. It just all comes to that point because you realize, Tate, that, yeah, it is a business. Yeah, you get paid to do this. But in the end, it's just about having that joy. And this week alone, these last two weeks, you know, being able to reconnect with all of the guys mm-hmm. has been probably my favorite thing. Like I've talked to every guy on the team and it's just pure joy. It's like, you know, I talked to Dennis Hobson. I talked to Stacey King and Will Perdue and Cliff Livingston, Trent Tucker, you know, all of the guys. And it's like, we haven't missed the beat. Now, you know, we don't talk every day and I don't talk to Scotty and Michael every day, but when you do get on the phone, it's just like, you have this, connection Mm -hmm. that you can't really explain so um i just remember feeling all those things right and i and you feel it from you know like 
God, this is what I was doing when I was a young kid playing for, you know, in the CYO league. And then you feel the pain of college and you feel all of the ups and downs. And then you get to that moment and then you realize this is what it feels like. And, mm -hmm. uh, so those were, it was a lot going on and, um, God, it's just, I can't, I can't tell you expressed how much joy that you feel at that moment. And we remember in the series, I mean, Jordan, you know, early on, they had picked the Cavaliers to beat them in five games. And he was talking to all three of the beat writers, including <laughs> Steve Smith. And, you know, he was going through all their predictions. And it was like, right. I'm already done with you. You said three right. games. You've done, you said four games. Now I'm on game five. And he wins that series, obviously hitting the shot over Craig Elo. And, and you see these moments as they build up. As you said, he became that superhuman version of Air Jordan. And it was an ascension. It wasn't a overnight he is crowned, even though when he did come into the NBA, he was great in his first year and he was amazing. And everyone was talking about the, the story of Air Jordan. It still was a, a, a growth there. We always heard the people talking about the selfishness and how he learned how to play team basketball. And that kind of gets me to the, the coach that we're talking about who wins this championship, and that's Phil Jackson. And uh, Phil Jackson, obviously, you know, we, we hear the story about him being more of a counterculture uh, type of coach as opposed to what we usually seen in the NBA. Right. Um, you know, he had a story about taking acid in one of his memoirs <laughs> that he wrote early on. Um, you know, he's coaching in Puerto Rico. Um, there's, you know, officials getting shot by mayors. I mean, you know, Phil Jackson, obviously – has a lot of life experience and he was able to bring that to the table and relate to guys like a Dennis Rodman, who obviously, you know, has a totally different story than a Michael Jordan or than a BJ Armstrong, but Phil was able to get everyone on the same page at some level. So can you speak to just what Phil was able to do with that team that year coming off such a devastating loss, obviously in 1990? Well, you know, Tate, I think you, I think you have a great understanding of the difficulty of playing in the NBA. Mm -hmm. You have, um, when you come into a locker room, right, the coach, you only listen to the coach really at twice a year. You listen mm -hmm. to him at the first day of practice, right? The first day of practice, the, the coach is going to come in and he's going to lay out the rules. He's going to lay out the fines. He's going to mm -hmm. lay out how we're going to play. You're going to listen to him the first day. And then you're going to listen to him the first game of the playoffs. Mm -hmm. That's that, that's that's just the, that's the way it is. It's You have 82 games. You have hundreds of practices you're only going to listen twice a year mm -hmm. so phil had an understanding of okay every time i come into this locker room i'm not giving one speech i'm actually giving 12 different speeches mm -hmm. and phil somehow knew that right and he knew that the most important thing with every player in that locker room was trust what's my connection with you because there were two yous, right? There's the person, B.J. Armstrong, and then there's the player. And Phil had to connect with the person before I would even allow him to talk to the player. <laughs> that's, mm -hmm. just, that's just how it is. Every player is going to only show you what they want to show you. Mm -hmm. Every player. And once the player determines that you don't care about the person, you have no chance to coach. It's a wrap. Yeah. It's over. So Phil Jackson was just aware of the people that was in that locker room. So his connection with Dennis was different than his connection with Scotty, which was different than his connection with Bill Cartwright, which was different than his connection with BJ Armstrong. Once he connected with the person, mm -hmm. then 
he could coach the player because all players understand if you're going to win, you got to be coached. Mm-hmm. You you can't. You have to want to be coached. That's what I admired most about Michael was he wanted to be coached, mm-hmm. right? Phil Jackson was asking us the question, do I have permission to tell you guys the truth? It's not personal here. It's business. Mm-hmm. But the only way that I can do that is if you allow me to do that. So I think part of that way of thinking was probably cultivated in his playing days in New York, right? Every player has identified that like, yeah, I'm just a guy, but mm. I get it, right? Sometimes the player is going to mess up, but he's not really talking to the person, right? And Phil had this unique way of separating the two. Like he had a connection with Dennis. Mm-hmm. Dennis had a true connection with Chuck Daly because Chuck was only talking to the person. Like, what am I going to do? I'm, am I going to give Michael Jordan some secret formula on how to play basketball? No, he already knows how to play. All mm-hmm. I got to do is make sure the person is good. And then these guys are professionals, you know? And um, and Phil was great that way. And and I, I think he I think he kind of understood that, that if you're going to win up here, you have to be able to function with all of the different personalities, right? Mm-hmm. The Pistons personality was totally different than ours. But their coaching and their staff was able to deal with that. The Lakers' personality was showtime. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our personalities were different. And we were all able to be ourselves in this group. But then we all had to figure out how to play together as a group. And Phil, uh, you know, he really, I think he strived. I think he really had a sense of community, right? And Mm -hmm. I don't know where that came from, but he had a sense of community. And we all felt it and, and we bought into it. And that's the person that obviously Phil Jackson is. And then as a coach, he was, you know, influenced by Tex Winter. And we see the background there with, you know, Jerry Krause having Phil Jackson on the bench. And, you know, the first time he brings him around, stands, you know, like this is not my guy. Uh, you know, he's, he's coming off, obviously, the you know, probably a few trips too many at that point. And then Doug, <laughs> and then Doug Collins comes right in. Um, and meets with Phil. Phil gets on the bench. And, you know, you see that relationship there. You obviously know Jerry Krause very well. You know Phil Jackson very right. well. And you understand the triangle very well. So to see that relationship sort of, you know, matriculate and come out into a situation where Michael Jordan says, I didn't like Phil Jackson as my coach because right. Phil Jackson wanted to take a ball away from me and wanted me to pass the ball to Bill Cartwright to take shots when I know I should be taking the shots. So h- how was Phil able to take, you know, Texas mentality, which is him taking notes over here, you know, take the strategy and then deliver it to those personalities. Because like you said, that is such a challenge. And then then to get everyone to buy into the triangle itself is obviously a new way to play uh, for the whole team. Yeah, well, you know, if I can get real technical here. Yeah. um, Look, we all have insecurities, right? We all Mm -hmm. have insecurities or undeveloped things about us in our personalities. Um, A 48-minute game, an NBA game, is a very long game. Mm -hmm. And... You know, look, Michael was a very responsible scorer. He was a very responsible player. He's always held himself accountable. So the accountability of him and his talent, he he took on that from day one. Mm. When I say he was, was responsible, you know, he shot over 50% for his career. So this wasn't a guy who was just gunning, taking up shots because he could. 
he held himself to a very, very high standard of excellence. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was the first thing. Now, what we needed from Michael was something that all of the teams had to do. We had to get Michael to really stop playing the game of basketball, right? Mm -hmm. We had to allow Scottie Pippen, Horace Grant, the young players like myself to come in and play the game. And then Michael had to assume the role of all great players and championship teams. We had to have a closer. Mm -hmm. That's what was different, right? You can play the game and you can do all of the things that a, an individual player can do in this league. But if you're going to play the game at a championship level, we had to have a style of play that was going to allow Michael to stop playing the game and become the closer of the game. In the last four minutes of a game tape, Michael Jordan was perfect. He was a perfect player. He was going to score, mm -hmm. get fouled, go to the free throw line, and make those or get an and one. Your choice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. how we felt in the last four minutes of a game. If we, if the game was tied, we knew we were going to score. Well, it's We didn't know what you was going to do, but we knew what our guy was going to do. Mm -hmm. That guy was not going to be denied. So Michael really, I think, understood that, oh, yeah, okay. If Scotty can get his 20 points and – eight rebounds and 10 assists or whatever he was doing. And everybody, we could keep the game always in striking distance as a unit. Michael Jordan could go to a place that no one else could go to. Mm -hmm. And that's what he, that's what, to me, that's what made him like go from here to there. He mm -hmm. was like, look, man doesn't average 37 points a night shooting over 50% in this league. And this mm -hmm. is what hand-checking. He faced every defense you can possibly face. What made him this player that we're all talking about now is that he could finish a game. Mm -hmm. He could finish. Like, he was, in my, in my book, as a guard who played with him, he was always plus 10. As long mm -hmm. as I could keep the game and manage the game to where we, if we were down eight, in the last four minutes of a game, we were going to win by two. Mm -hmm. If the if we were if, if the score was tied, we were going to win plus ten. Mm -hmm. He was that good. He was just perfect in the last four minutes of a game. He was excellent in the first forty four minutes, but he was going to be perfect in the last four minutes, and he did it time and time and time again, to where now he was playing a game within the game. Because he knew no one else could play it, and um, it was it was almost unfair. And you see the maturation, right, as he grows into that player. And we see in the huddle there in the '91 Finals in Game Five when Phil Jackson is talking about Paxson, he's like, "John Paxson is open," and Jordan at that point is finally at the point where he's fine to make that pass. You know, it doesn't have right. to be about him. And he had you you said in the documentary when they they cut to you, you said it took about a year for the entire team to grow into the triangle to become a team that actually 
played within the triangle offense the way it's supposed to be played according to Texanville. And Michael was at that point. The team was at that point. And in that moment when you need Michael not to just be a superhero, but to be, like you said, playing outside of himself within the triangle, he makes those passes to Paxson. You win the series. You win the first title. And, of course, the, the storybook begins. But right. uh, I want to get quickly back to you know how we start this story of these first two episodes. And that, of course, is with the, with the Pistons. And that is with the Jordan rules. And that is with, you know, Dennis Rodman. And we get the Rodman story. Uh, we talk about the 1986 draft with him. We, you know, we talk about him being a pest. You talk about Chuck Daly, how much he loves Dennis Rodman being on those Pistons teams. And, you know, they were basically the kings of the Eastern Conference at that time with Dennis Rodman. And then, you know, we see the second period of that. He, fl- he fits like a glove, according to Scottie Pippen, when he comes to the Bulls. Mm-hmm. And then we get the story of the documentary, uh, which is, Phil Jackson, and we just talked about how he was able to handle personalities. He calls a meeting with Jordan. Jordan, you know, had a meeting with Rodman and Phil. He says he knew this this was not going to be a good meeting for him. He was not going (laughs) to like this meeting. He goes to the meeting. Uh, Phil gives Dennis Rodman 48 hours. Um, The rest is history. Jordan ends up flying to Vegas to get Dennis back, um, to get him back playing with the Bulls at this point. This is, of course, in 1998. You were not on the team with the Bulls at this point, but did you hear hear about this chaos going on uh, with the Bulls at this time? Yes, I, I did. And mm. uh, I was still in contact with the, the players on the team. So mm. I had heard about it. And But, I mean, honestly, take that. That's every team. Every team has these stories, right? Mm. I have some great stories when I was with the Bulls. I've got great stories when I was with Golden State on all the teams that I played with. And, you know, it just became that's everyday I, I didn't I didn't flinch at it. I was like, mm-hmm. it's interesting. <laughs> <That turns laughs> right. Yeah. You know, but the the one thing take that I learned um is that winning covers a multitude of sins. Mm-hmm. Like every team has the same exact problems, except the team that wins, you just you just the problems go away. Mm-hmm. So when I was in Chicago, we had the same team as the worst team in the league, except they didn't win, so their problem was magnified. We won, and there was great coaching, or this was a mentally tough team. Mm-hmm. Or you just have to find a way. I mean, take that's that's it. Okay. Dennis Rodman had the talent. Check. Mm-hmm. Scottie Pippen was a great player. Check. Michael Jordan was a great player. Check. Okay, Dennis goes off the rails a little bit. Okay, we just got to get this back. <laughs> We just mm-hmm. got to get it back on, mm-hmm. on track. Now, did he violate the rules? Did he? Oh, yeah, he did it. But you know mm-hmm. what? This is life. Mm-hmm. Now deal with it. <laughs> like, okay? This is life. Let's deal with it. Mm-hmm. So what did Michael do? I'm going over there personally to get Dennis Rodman. Mm-hmm. He didn't send the trainer. He didn't send the assistant coach. I'm going over there because I got to do what I got to do. That's leadership. Mm -hmm. Right? You don't leave anything to chance when you are playing on a championship caliber team. Mm -hmm. So the thing that I admire the most is that when something's important to you, you do it yourself. Mm -hmm. He said, I was going over there to get Dennis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? He he went over there. Mm -hmm. Michael Jordan got in his car. Mm-hmm. drove himself over there and didn't care what was going on. No judgment. Hey, no. 
come on back. Let's do what we got to do. Mm-hmm. And then told Phil to back off. How about that? Mm-hmm. Phil, back off. Now he's here. <laughs> we got to do what we got to do. That's what I respect. And that is, to me, what makes a great team or a great teammate. You just find a way. And uh, is it crazy? Yes. Is it dysfunctional? Very. But you know what? Those are the great stories. And um, and you find a way to get things done that are important to you. Yeah, and the stories, uh, they, they keep rolling on. And as Phil Jackson said in this documentary, you know, he said one thing about life is it changes. And, of course, you know, we've seen a lot of change and a lot of iterations. You see just in this, these two episodes, we see a guy, Dennis Rodman, go from, you know, the, the basically the enemy, the face of the enemy of the Chicago Bulls to, you know, one of the big three on the Chicago Bulls later on in the series as we get to 1998 when he's with, you know, with Pittman and with Jordan and those three guys obviously making a run for the title. So, obviously, life changes. Uh, the Bulls dynasty changed over time uh it's been great through these first four episodes seeing the bulls dynasty and bj before we get out of here we just got to bring up because you have some you've been digging around your office you've just been trying to find <laughs> you know you found the bulls 1991 championship banner uh that i think belongs to the city of chicago but you somehow have it um but you also you, you found like the scouting report of the pistons and uh you know j- just a little bit of a teaser here we're gonna have uh, a former pistons player come on the program this week but you also you you may tweet out you've already tweeted out one little teaser right at the scattering report but you found some good things around your office yeah you know i just digging around and uh, like mm-hmm. i said i things that i've had and i haven't looked out in so many years so um you know it was fun to like kind of get back in that mindset mm-hmm. for a minute and uh but a key i said mindset there's no way <laughs> to actually go out there and do anything mm-hmm. uh, but you know it's fun to to prepare it was fun to look at how you looked at the game and to watch it and to see it on the screen has, has been fun to watch. So I'm looking forward this week to having a good friend of the Pistons because in the end, it's all about respect. And you want to respect those players. And we had the utmost respect for the Detroit Pistons. Absolutely. We had the utmost respect. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I think it will be fun. It will be fun to talk about old times. But more importantly, uh, to have – two old guys talking about the good old days, right? <laughs> and, the good uh, old days. Yes. The good old days. And the thing is they were champions, right? And the mm-hmm. Detroit Pistons were, they were an excellent, excellent ball club. And um, those were fun times. Yeah. Nothing but respect for the Pistons. Of course, we'll talk about all the, all the Jordan rules uh, things uh, as we get going. Uh, we have to point out the last scene of this, of the final episode we saw in episode four, uh, Michael Jordan betting on the Broncos in 1998, getting a hundred dollars as he gets on the plane, which is always a beautiful moment. Uh, this is pushing through. This is after the last dance. We will be back on Tuesday with like BJ said, a very special guest from the Detroit Pistons. Thank you for listening. As always subscribe, review to the podcast and BJ, we will be back on Tuesday. All right, we'll see you guys then. And uh, please tune in because we have a special guest just for you. Uh-huh.